Right, hello everyone. Welcome back to Rupture Radio's At The Root series. It's Stearman here, just dropping in to do a bit of housekeeping before transitioning to today's episode. The first thing I'd like to plug is the podcast Patreon feed, found in the episode description, at which you can support the podcast. We'd like to be able to release episodes regularly, but unfortunately they just take a lot of time with recording or scripting or editing. But recently, patron donations have allowed us to get a part-time editor, for the time being, who will help us edit the episodes and get them out a little quicker. If you'd like to contribute to this effort and allow us to keep another for a little while longer, please consider donating even €2, as this helps us out a lot. All support is majorly appreciated, and if you can't chuck us any money, you can of course share the podcast online or rate us on your podcast app. Both of these things are also big helps. Right, so today's episode is on the ongoing issues around abortion in Ireland. Nicole was joined by Sinead Kennedy to discuss an article she wrote for Rupture highlighting the ongoing issues with the abortion legislation which was introduced after the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. That article is linked below and I would encourage people to have a look at the other articles on the Rupture website and consider picking up a copy of the magazine. Okay, I'll transfer us over to the discussion with Sinead now. Okay, so you state in the article that after the momentous victories won by the repeal movement, uh, the abortion law designed by the government after repeal clearly falls short of the demand for change that so many people desired. So what are the shortcomings of the current legislation? Okay, well, there, there, there are quite a lot of, of shortcomings, but I'll just focus <laughs> um, on the... I mean, I'll start with the first thing. The, the, I mean, I think the first problem with the law is um, is a general kind of philosophical one. And that is that it's it's a law that says abortion is illegal. And here are the circumstances in which you can have a legal abortion. And I think what it fails to do is acknowledge that things have changed. They have changed enormously in Ireland. They've, they've changed enormously, um, not because it has uh, it's something that's been gifted to us by politicians, but because for many, many decades, and you know, I, I do think of repeal, the movement for repeal as a kind of a continuum, a, a long, long struggle uh, by socialists, by feminists, by activists for many, many decades. Um, that really dates back, if you like, to the early 1980s, all the way through. Um, that that kind of intensifies in in, in the the couple of years preceding the the referendum in 2018. Um, but I think that people recognise that that things have changed in Ireland, and that women have the right to make decisions about their own body. So instead of designing a law that says you are entitled to make a decision, uh, a woman or a pregnant person is, is entitled to make a decision about uh, about whether or not they continue with their pregnancy. Um, and to do that is entirely uh, legal and it is something that is respected and guaranteed and protected by the law. It, they, they come up with this highly restrictive law that, that puts abortion within uh, a criminalized framework. So that's, I think, the, that is the, the overarching kind of philosophical problem with the law. And then that translates into, you know, very sort of uh, key obstacles that the law uh, that the law creates, beginning, first of all, with the 12 week, uh, the 12 week limit. The 12 week limit is, first of all, a, a pregnancy is dated 
from um, L- LPM, which uh, the um, last menstrual, LMP, sorry, not LPM, LMP, last menstrual period. Um, so sometimes, so, so women, you know, many women um, uh, have irregular periods, um, they have infrequent periods, they have periods of different durations. So it often means in cases that when a pregnancy is, is dated, that um, a woman could be much, much further along than she actually maybe thought that she was to begin with. Um, so that means that she's under this kind of pressure um, in these, uh, uh, in these uh, circumstances to make, uh, to make a decision. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the cases uh, that as activists that we would would encounter where women are uh, coming up on on the threshold uh, when they they visit a GP of of ten weeks and if it's over ten weeks you have to be referred to a maternity hospital and then you're in basically a kind of rush to get that appointment to to hit under the twelve uh, under the twelve week limit and doctors um, have to be careful. Uh, that they get it right, because let's not forget, the government refused, they they decriminalized abortion for women and pregnant people who access abortions, but they didn't decriminalize it for a doctor. So a doctor faces a criminal penalty, a criminal sentence, um, if they get it wrong, if they perform an abortion that is uh, that is too late. So the 12-week time limit creates a whole series of obstacles. And obviously those obstacles are most acutely felt uh, by more marginalized people, by women from uh, working class communities, asylum seekers, people living in direct provision, um, uh, people uh, 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 with, with disabilities, all of who have to navigate a whole series of obstacles in order to get access to abortion. Um, then when you do finally, if you finally get uh, get there and get in. On, yeah, once you've jumped over the hurdles. Yeah, exactly. You jumped over that hurdle, even other hurdle. And that is the three day waiting period or as at the time it was referred to as a period of reflection. Now, again, I think that's incredibly insulting to women and pregnant people um, who it basically says, well, you don't really know your own mind. You're not quite sure about your decision and you're forced to. You have one appointment, let's so say you have an appointment on Monday, and then you have to wait until Thursday um, to, um, to access that abortion. And you have to have two visits. So you have to see your GP or your, or your doctor obstetrician, whoever's performing the abortion, and then come back three days later. Um, so the, 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 that, uh, that three-day waiting period, which again, has no real basis, has, has, no, has absolutely no basis in, in medicine or science. It is simply a political uh, thing that was inserted into the law to basically uh, make the government uh, appear that they've kind of considered things. But really what it is, is is just deeply um, condescending uh, to to women and and basically, and pregnant people, and and basically said, you don't really know your own mind and we can't quite trust you to make a decision. I mean, there's no other element uh, um, of healthcare in which we say, are you really sure you want to get your yeah out? yeah exactly? Do you want to take three days to think about that surgery there now? Now you know you can't get it back. Um, so you know we, we don't do that in any other area of healthcare, and yet we we, we seem to think that that is uh, perfectly legitimate. We don't say to men who want vasectomies, "You sure? You're yeah. really, really sure now? I think you should come in now back in three days when you've had time to think about it because you're probably just." doing this on a whim. You know, we don't do that. But somehow it's seen as acceptable to do that uh, for people who, who want to access uh, access abortion. And those limit and the other limitation I think that that is a, that is a key obstacle is uh, for abortions that occur later in pregnancy and that is uh, in cases of fatal fetal anomaly. And that is 
that a doctor, uh, that the, the, the doctors involved must sign a piece of paper saying that the fetus will die within 28 days of, uh, of birth. Again, it's a very, it's a completely arbitrary figure. Yeah, and why 28 very, days of all? Yeah, yeah. And it's very difficult to say with absolute certainty mm-hmm. that you will have a, 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 um, a fatal fetal anomaly. So what you end up with is, is many cases of women and couples and uh, um, where they are given a diagnosis of severe or fatal fetal anomaly, but they're told basically it's not severe enough. And in those cases, you have people traveling usually to the UK to to access care. And since abortion was legalized then in Ireland, they travel to Britain. And if if you've been doing it in the last 18 months, you're you're traveling under the horrific conditions of a a global pandemic. Of course. We can talk about that later. (laughs) But you travel to Britain and there's a couple of centers in Britain which are already, because of cuts in the National Health Service, are already... um, under you know huge pressure and doctors are like why are you here this is now legal in ireland because they don't understand the limitations of the law here so that you're, you're kind of basically being told well we can't treat you go home and get treated uh, in your own country so it's really really difficult and really really challenging and you're talking about very wanted pregnancies in in very distressing very difficult circumstances often kind of later um in uh, in the pregnancy um, and then this, so this 28 days limit is, is causing huge hardship. And then behind all of that, doctors, many of whom are very, very committed and really want to do their best. And there are many, many doctors in this country who have made great efforts to ensure that abortion services are provided, but they're constantly doing it under um under the cover of, of criminalization. So in some work that I've been doing recently for, uh, for the National Women's Council, I interviewed many, many medical practitioners and all of them talked about how they're constantly operating in the, in the shadow of criminalization. And you have, as one doctor said, you, you kind of have this, you know, this kind of inner voice kind of saying, are you sure this is right? Are you sure this is right? Rather than your clinical voice saying, I'm, I, I'm a doctor, I'm experienced, I know what I'm doing. Um, and I'm operating in the best interest of my patient. You're constantly worrying about yourself. Are you going to end up? Um, uh, are you going to end up in the courts? Are you going to end up in prison? As one doctor said to me, there is no other area of my practice where if uh, I face twelve years in prison because I fill out a form wrong. So it kind of goes back to that original point that you made in that they didn't say abortion is now legal. They're saying we'll legislate for it in certain circumstances. So it leaves the doctors open to this sentence. And it also kind of, I suppose, one of the things that would have been cited around repeal was for women when they were going to the UK, it was the guilt and the upset that their own country couldn't provide them with the healthcare. So that still very much exists then if things are the way they, they're they described. So that's... Mayhem. So what difficulties are the term limits and the three-day waiting period currently causing in terms of abortion access? Well, I mean, I do think maybe the one thing we might, we should maybe acknowledge is that, you know, repeal was an enormous victory. And last year, we don't know that the figures should be out in the next day or two uh, for um, 
the uh, the number of women who accessed abortion. But last year, the figures that we have, well, 6,666 women accessed abortion. The majority of those were under 12 weeks. So those women would have had to travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is important, I think, to, you know, sometimes when we're, for, we're focusing on the limitations, we do need to remember the scale of our achievement. And I think that's important. But all of those obstacles, they just make it harder uh, and they also kind of, as you were saying there a minute ago, they kind of suggest that there's some, you know, in no other other area of healthcare, do you have all of these kind of obstacles to jump through that are moral obstacles, not medical obstacles? I mean, sometimes, yes, you have to come back for a second. You know, sometimes you might be told if you go to a doctor, well, I can't do that procedure today. I need to do blood tests or I need to get you an appointment or you need to do this first. Yeah, there's a medical reason for coming back. Like, I yeah. don't know why that is. But here you're being told, well, yeah, we know that this is what you want to do, but I'm sorry, I can't do anything about it because you need to go think about it for three days. And, you know, that that creates obstacle, big obstacles, I think, if you live, at, particularly if you live outside Dublin. So if you if you live in Dublin, you can probably with some ease, um, I wouldn't overstate it, you know, if you're an asylum. There's not great GP access in all areas as well. Yeah, you know? exactly. But there are clinics like, you know, Dublin Well Woman and the Irish Family Planning Association that within Dublin do offer um uh, you know, um, access to abortion services. What happens is when you leave Dublin and you leave urban centres, so Sligo, for example, I mean, I, I believe that there is a doctor coming online, but that's one doctor. Um, you know, you there isn't a GP. Um, if your doctor, if your GP, you go to your GP and you're in a rural area and your GP is not sure of your, da- of your dates, um, it, the, the GP can refer you for a scan. And that that is also um, uneven. There's uneven provision for that. So, for example, uh, one doctor talked to me about how um, a woman uh, from Donegal ended up doing a round trip to Dublin and back on the same day oh, in order wow. to get um, uh, to get a scan. Now, you try and do that on public transport. Especially during a pandemic, and that's twelve hours easily, and that's not that's that's just on that's just on the bus. Yeah. That's not factoring in the appointments and everything else, and all of the obstacles. And we know that if you don't have a car, um, that you know how difficult it is to travel um, in rural areas where the public transport system just isn't uh, isn't really fit for purpose. And you have again, you know, you're you have to explain why you're away, uh, not just one day because you go for the first appointment. Why you're away for, uh, you know, why why are you going to be away on Monday, and then why do you have to go back on Thursday, and then finding a a place to take the pills and to, you know, to take care of yourself and um, look after yourself while you experience uh, the abortion. Um, All of those things are are very difficult for marginalised people in particular. Absolutely. And all of them are filled with mixed emotions, given the circumstances as well. So that's can be a very difficult journey for people. So you mentioned that there are factors causing marginalised women and pregnant people to still have to travel to England for abortion after appeal. So what would these factors be and how can the legislation address these so that it doesn't continue on that way? Well, I suppose the biggest obstacle is the 12 day is the 12, um, the 12 week limit. So basically after 12 weeks, or after really 11, kind of 11 and a two, three days, it's very hard to access an abortion. So when we look at the breakdown of figures, um, we see that only a handful of abortions are performed post 12 weeks. 
So it's it's virtually impossible to get an abortion after 12 weeks, unless in cases of fatal fetal anomaly. So in, in, in about 100 of those 6,666 cases that I, I talked about, about 100 of those are, 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 are fatal fetal anomalies. And about 24 or 25 are um, uh, post 12 weeks. And that would be where there's a, a, a serious risk to your health or your life. And what's interesting about those figures so that 25 um, is that they're identical to the numbers that were performed under um, the PLDPA, the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act, which was the highly restrictive abortion uh, legislation that was brought in in 2013 after the death of Savita Halepanavar. And that was the legislation that required uh at a minimum three doctors, but possibly six doctors to sign off on you having an abortion. So that is, so the fact that the figures are, are are almost identical. Yeah, that's crazy. Suggests that this this is not it's not working at that level. So the vast majority of women who don't qualify at twelve weeks. Then have to uh, then have to travel. So in 2019, 375 women travelled. Um, we just had the figures there about two weeks ago from um, from the UK. So 194 women travelled. Now again, they travelled during um, uh, un- an unprecedented event, a global pandemic. Every like. You know, every single woman who ever has to travel, I think, is a tragedy. But this is obscene that you were forced, that women were Absolutely. forced to travel. Yeah. And about uh, and a little over 10 percent of those are uh, are women of color as well. So who 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 um, who face um, particular obstacles uh, because of racism, uh, because of just general problems in accessing healthcare here. Uh, like one doctor talked about how you're um, a pregnant uh, woman, you come to see a a local doctor you don't speak English or you don't speak English very well so obviously you know you have a lot of concerns you want to be able to talk through your decision with somebody Um, so the the doctor in those circumstances is going to have to secure some translation services so the doctor has to go in and put in an order a a purchasing order to get a translator and then there's not too many translators in this country so then they have to find a translator so that's delay 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 so you need to be Three weeks while you're waiting for exactly, all and then that translator has to be available for your both both your appointments three yeah. days apart. And I'm sure at your own cost in some situations. Yes, given- if you don't have a PPS number at your own cost, yeah, yeah. So I suppose it like I mean f- for us as repeal activists, you know, the the main thing that seemed to be on the forefront of people's minds was the hard cases. So what you're saying there is the hard cases are essentially still having to travel because the numbers are the same before and after the legislation. They're the same for women who don't qualify under 12 weeks. So they're not the same in that most, you know, most women who want to act, like you're not talking about, you know, mo- you're talking about 6,600 women, well, 6,500 something women accessed abortions here in Ireland, okay? Mm-hmm. It's just when you don't qualify. Um, and the problem, I suppose, is that if you are living in a, in difficult circumstances, if you're marginalised, every aspect of your life is more complicated because you're constantly navigating a system that is not designed to help you, but is a system that's designed to create obstacles. So everything is more difficult. If you're just from the, your experience, like just imagine a woman living in direct provision, how difficult it must be for her living under the psychological pressure of direct provision, 
with no space, no room of her own, uh, to, first of all, to make that decision. Yeah. A country where she may be traumatized, uh, she may be suffering PTSD, um, has no real disposable income of her own. Every aspect of her life is controlled in the system of direct provision. She has to constantly you know, navigate a system that creates all of these obstacles. She might have a, a regular GP. She might be able to find a GP. Everything is just so much more difficult for her. So again, what, and I think that's what happens everywhere um, that, um, you know, you have prohibitive abortion laws. Um, there are always people who will be able to navigate around them. And most of those are, are women of means. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, women with education, mm -hmm. uh, women with money, middle class women who, who are used to kind of navigating up, um, uh, obstacles, who can get help, who know people. Um, but if you're vulnerable, if you're poor, if you're working class, if you're living in direct provision, if you're a traveler woman, if you're a woman of color, none of these things are available to you. And everything is so much harder. Um, so everywhere we see um, obstacles to abortion, it's not that they, they, the interesting thing is they never stop women having abortions. Women always have abortions. It doesn't, there's nowhere in the world that women don't have abortions. Mm -hmm. You can't stop them. Okay. What you can do is make it really, really difficult. And who you make it most difficult for are poor and marginalized women. And, and pregnant and obviously pregnant people uh, when I'm uh, I'm not just putting that, that on as an afterthought, like the pregnant people face a whole uh, particular set. They can involve a small number of people. But it, once again, I think looking at um, looking at the margins um, are, is where you see the obstacles and where you see the problems of the law. And it seems to me that if you started um, designing a law that started from the most marginal and said, well, what are the obstacles? What are the problems? What are the challenges that the most vulnerable and the most marginal face in accessing abortion services? And if we started there and designed our laws, our, our healthcare system or any form of our systems from that perspective, we would end up with a much e more equal and much fairer society. And in this case, a, an abortion law. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's you're going to end up with marginalised people unless that's where you start with your planning. So I just I'm just now realising something I should have mentioned very early on is that when we discuss, when I say that you mentioned I'm talking about the wonderful article that you wrote uh, for issue three of Rupture magazine. So that's what we're referring to here. So just to put that out there. So. In your wonderful article, you do mention that um, also people in rural areas are dealing with difficulties under the current legislation. So what's causing these problems and for women and pregnant people in different parts of the country? Yeah. Well, obviously, the things like, you know, the, 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 the issues that affect everybody, the, the time limits, of the three-day waiting period, and what I, I talked about earlier, um, you know, kind of travel obstacles, things like that, just kind of basic, you know, outside of kind of urban centres in this country, uh, services are very hit and miss. I mean, uh, all of our services are very Dublin-centric. You mentioned public transport, you know. You know, and, and as somebody, I, I mean, I grew up in the country. I now live in Dublin, but I grew up in the country. And um, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this at my age, but I never I never learned how to drive. Um, and I so I, I still don't know how to drive. But I, because I live I'm, in the... I'm the same, Sinead, don't worry. 
So it's comforting to know. But because I live in the city centre, um, I don't really think about it because I, I actually, you know, the public transport is actually pretty good, actually. Yeah, it's, it's really available to you. Yeah, of course. Bus, Lewis, uh, train, you know, it's fine. I, I work in Maynooth. I can get the train. It's very pleasant. It's fine. But, um, you know, my parents live in, in, in Kildare. Um, getting out of them, is, is it can be a little bit difficult sometimes, you know. Um, but I, I lived in the Midlands and it was just, impo- you know, in the country when I was growing up, it was impossible to go anywhere. So I actually do know what it's like to live um, to live in uh, to live in a very rural, very isolated area. And, you know, things like everybody kind of knows everything about your business. So very true. If you disappear for three days, where were you? The questions yeah, exactly. will be asked. Very, yeah. uh, it's very, it's very, very difficult. Um, and then just the, you know, the, the lack of services. So again, only half of maternity hospitals. So if you're over 10 weeks or kind of close enough to the 10 weeks or over 10 weeks, you would have to go to a maternity hospital. Only half of maternity hospitals um, in this state provide abortion services. Um, GPs um, outside of Dublin and, and in certain parts of the country. So particularly if you're in the Northwest, um, there's there's very few uh, service providers there. So you probably have to go to Galway. Um, and, you know, often, again, as we said, often you're kind of almost in these cases always directed you're in Donegal and you're directed towards Dublin yeah. because actually it's probably easier to get to, to Dublin yeah, than it is to, Dublin to get, to get the train back Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there are all of those kind of um, those kind of obstacles in, in, in accessing services. Um, so the, the lack of hospital provision and the lack of GP provision is a is a is a real issue. Um, and the fact that the government have you know not managed you know this is like. Um, uh, you know, year three, and we still don't have um, all the maternity hospitals, all the state, you know, state-funded maternity hospitals, not accessing, um, uh, not providing abortion services. So, you know, kind of, um, I know we may touch on this later, but it does sort of strike me um, about the National Maternity Hospital, like how you're supposed to say you can force a hospital that's run by the Catholic Church or the ethos of the Catholic, if not exactly by the Catholic Church, but is is governed in line with canon law and uh, Catholic ethical um, medical uh, legal ethics. Um, if you can't get the hospital, the maternity hospitals that we have at the moment, if you can't get exactly them, if you can only get half of them. So how are, you, how are you supposed to say that these services are protected? I, I, I don't understand how you can say that. I absolutely agree there. <laughs> so we are nearing the government's proposed review of the abortion legislation, which is something that has kind of, I suppose, um, caught a few of us in the uh, abortion rights campaign by surprise. You know, there's not a big movement behind it at the moment, so it's really good to bring attention to the fact that it is coming up. Um, so what are the key priorities and like, what should the pro-choice movement be pushing for on the upcoming legislation? Well, I think there are, you know, I, I think there are two things, uh, you know. Um, so I, I think there's the review itself, um, I think that we need to make sure that the review happens, um, that it's not an academic exercise. It's not a box ticking exercise. You know, you produce a paper, paper. We, oh, yeah, we reviewed the legislation. Everything's grand. Yeah, everybody's happy. Done. Yeah. Yeah. So that you actually have at the heart of the legislation is not an academic review, but it is one that puts the experience of women, pregnant people, people who accessed the service. Um, that you put their experiences. So it's a, a, a you know, a, it's a kind of um, a user-led and a provider-led. So you talk to the doctors, 
You talk to, you know, um, medical practitioners, you talk to clinics, you talk to people who are providing the services. So from their point of view, and then you talk to the, the people who are using the service. So yeah. w- what would have made your experience better? What were the obstacles that you you face? How do we make it better? So we start from, from that point of view. And I think then there are, you know, clear things that come out of that, you know, the 12-week limit, removing the, um, you know, to extend beyond the 12 weeks. Because again, you know, it's an arbitrary limit. It's not rooted in medicine. Um, uh, and then you remove the obligatory three-day waiting period, the 28-day limit in cases of fatal fetal anomaly, and you decriminalize abortion. So they would be things that I think could be very easily done to make um, the service better. But I think then there's the wider movement that has to win uh, to continue on the political struggle that we began with repeal um, to make sure that every single woman and pregnant person who wants an abortion can access an abortion in this country, um, can access it um, easily, in a supportive um, and, uh, you know, compassionate manner. And that we move towards treating abortion um, as a central aspect of healthcare. And we stop seeing it as something odd or peculiar or something- that people that, can have an opinion on. When yeah, it's not exactly. Yeah. Their yeah. medical procedure. Yeah. So and I then suppose- we might need to just maybe think a little bit about um, safe access areas. Um, because that is an issue. I, I think we need to be careful how we think about that. Um, but I, I, I think that is something that needs to be looked at as well. I suppose something else that would be great to see would be the maintaining the telemedicine, which was brought in during COVID. It could help for people who do have to travel. You know, it means you can do some of your appointments via Zoom rather than having to go through the ordeal. And also we'd love to see um, inclusion of trans and non-binary language. Uh, within the actual legislation itself. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, uh, I think that's really important. It's not enough to simply say that that's covered by the law because the law can also be an educator. And if you exclude that language from the law, um, I think it just kind of copper fastens exclusion. So putting a a language that's inclusive that, you know, I mean, I think it's very simple to, you know, you can include like, I don't think people have to get really kind of caught up about it. It's not, it's about saying women and pregnant people. So you, you know, it's very simple. It's not, it's not that difficult, you know, it's about making space for everybody. It's not, I mean, we don't want to end up in this sort of, you know, bizarre, um, you know, very hate filled uh, situation like we see that's happening, I think, within feminism in Britain, where the rights of women are being put up against the rights of trans people. The rights of trans people are being put up in opposition to the rights of women. You know, you know, as you know, the basic concept of solidarity should be here, that we support one another and that we advocate for non-binary people, for our trans brothers and sisters. And we, we make sure that nobody is left behind. Absolutely. And like the inclusion of inclusive language would make such a difference to some people that we wouldn't even know how how much it could mean to them. So I think that has all provided a good summary of the issues with the abortion legislation. So before we finish up, I thought it'd be good to get your view on what's next for the women's movement. So we've recently had an upsurge, as you mentioned, around the National Maternity Hospital. So do you think that this could be a sign of something bigger? And how do you think we can contribute to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of like this this campaign has been going on for um, a little bit of time. It's not just something that, that that's happened in the last kind of few months, and it's it, it's very much a movement that has developed out of the repeal movement. So, like one of the big groups behind it is is Dunleary, which came out and the the campaign there. It's a local activist group came out of the really fantastic group that they had in Dunleary around Together for Yes, and they've been you know creating a lot of the real energy behind the protest movement in particular um, so you know and they were all there on on, on on Saturday and gave the kind of campaign great energy so I think that's um, that's part of it it's kind of I think frustrating uh, that you know you kind of think we're done or not not yeah. that you're done but you, I didn't think that you know three years later I'd still be outside the door uh, just fighting for a very basic thing uh, I mean, you like, turn your yeah. back and they're selling it off to the north yeah. again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like it is, you know, and I think one of the things, as you you pointed out yourself there in, in, in the context of the, the the pandemic, we've we've seen a huge backlash, though against women and you know it's it, it's not just you know it's not just socialists or, or radical feminists who are talking about this kind of backlash the you know the united nations have talked about it the world health organization have talked about it the united nations have talked about or uh, sorry the world health uh yeah the, no the united nations the united nations have talked about how basically women have lived um a shadow pandemic a pandemic that nobody really talks about so yeah. They stand up and they make these pronouncements about stay at home as a public health care measure. I'm not, I'm not saying I, 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 I disagree with it, it uh, but you no thought or consideration is given to what that means for women, largely because women aren't even involved in the kind of decision making. No, so that's a very see, good point. Yeah, we've seen women like over the last years who were working from home, who are juggling suddenly becoming school teachers, um, you know, taking care of everybody at home, working uh, full time and, and, and juggling all of these things. And then often doing it in the kind of pressure cooker of an abusive relationship, um, you know, dramatic um, uh, uh, in Ireland, but also globally, a dramatic surge in domestic violence, um, often leading to an upsurge in, in femicide and women actually being uh, being murdered by their uh, by their partners, and we're constantly anytime you know. I remember last year during International Women's Day, all the politicians, you know, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and Co. standing up in the doll, making their usual condescending speeches as they yeah. do International Women's Day, <laughs> talking about taking issues like domestic violence seriously. And what do we learn? That the guards basically hang up on women who call, begging for help. Um, you know, what do you call it, you know, uh, not taking these issues uh, seriously, not seeing women, um, um, women, women's lives in danger, that this is not, you know, call me back when he hits you some more, call me back when you feel like he's going to um, really, uh, if you think he's going to kill you, like if you've gotten to that far, it's like, too late. Nobody calls the police if they don't think it's going to go too far. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, you know, there is there's huge amounts of work to do. And, and you know, I think, you know, that there's a challenge, I think, just, you know, because this is um, we are socialists. And I, I, I do think it is important because everybody's talking about feminism these days and it's yes. everywhere. And that's mm -hmm. a good thing. But it's also it, there are also problems with that because the women's movement, right, whether you go back, you can go back 
to its very, um, you know, its origins and, you know, where even the night, let's say in the 19th century, probably go back further, but let's just say the 19th century, there's always been two women's movements. Um, and there's always been a group of women, you know, upper middle class women who um, were prepared to sell out their working class uh, sisters Absolutely. in order to advance their own interests. Yeah. yeah, there's always a group who um, are quite happy to take the benefits um, that, you know, this kind of corporate neoliberal brand of feminism uh, can provide. It can provide a lot of benefits for uh, a, for a certain section of women. And all the rest of us are supposed to do is that hope that that will kind of trickle down. So we're told, you know, if you, if you vote in these kind of progressive politic, you know, progressive feminist politicians, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those change them, and, and we know it's not. Yeah. Um, and we know that there so there have always been two movements. And I think it's important that, you know, um, when we talk about uh, feminism, that we're talking about a, about feminism as socialists, which is which is a very different type of feminism. It has different roots. Um, and I think it's, you know, I, I think it's it, it's it's time to reclaim that type of feminism. That's what I want to see. Totally agree, Sinead. It feels kind of like society's answer to women's movements is like, oh, we'll make advertisements with more women in them and we'll make TV shows that have women stars as if that's going to solve our problems when we know, like even in terms of abortion, like we're fighting for real choice as socialists. Um, what we mean by real choice is you know, not to have to abort the child because you can't afford it or because you're in the middle of education and you couldn't have support or, you know, all of these kind of reasons. So totally agree. As socialists, we're just looking at it from a totally different level. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'd like to know where where were all those feminists um, when the Debenhams workers were on strike? Yeah. yeah I mean, there is a feminist struggle. Where were Absolutely. all these feminists? They never said anything about it. No, they were at home giving it about people getting the PUP payment. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So thank you so much, Sinead, for your time. That's been so informative. Thank you very much.